0: Our text this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is your word and We do ask for your blessing this morning, that you would speak to our hearts in the power of your Spirit, teaching us, instructing us, convincing us of your truth, and Lord, um, helping us to live this new life in Christ to which you have called us. Father, you are our strength. You are our rock. You are mighty, unmovable, unmovable always the same, glorious in all of your areas and all your attributes. Father, thank you for the church and for this privilege this morning. We ask that you would be with us now and you would give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. Some of you may have been thinking that we would never get through chapter 5, but here we go. We're in chapter 6 now, and... Uh, you know, there appears to be a new section here based on how our Bibles are divided up. Um, These original chapter headings were not in the original letter. This was one letter that was read from start to finish. And so the question that I would ask just to begin this morning is this, is is chapter 6 really a new section? You know, what has Paul been teaching us to this point And is there a break in his thought from the end of chapter 5 to a new section now in chapter 6? And I would answer that by having us look back and remember what Paul has taught us to this point. Just briefly, as an overview, Paul has been um, at pains to show in this letter to the Romans one central doctrine, and that is justification. Justification that is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And he previewed that for us in the first chapter, in Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, when he said, I am not ashamed of the power of the gospel, excuse me, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in it, that is in the gospel, the power of God, excuse me, for in it, excuse me, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so there he previewed for us really what is the theme of this whole letter, the just shall live by faith. And he spent the rest of chapter 1 helping us to understand that the Gentile nations of the world are all guilty before God and under his condemnation. He spends chapter 2 doing the same thing but for the Jewish audience. And showing that they are guilty as well. In chapter 3 he sums it up and he says all are guilty. All are under sin and under the wrath of God. And then he begins to unpack for us in more detail what it means to be justified freely by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so he does that throughout the remainder of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 he gives us some powerful examples with Abraham and with David to showcase this truth that it is those who believe God who are counted righteous, who are imputed, who are actually gifted with the righteousness of God himself so that when he sees you and me now, he no longer sees us as we are sinners, but he sees us in Christ as beloved as accepted fully because his son is fully accepted. And then he gets to chapter 5, and he's now introducing what the benefits are from this justification that he is so earnest for us to understand and to live in our understanding. He wants us to know that having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. We have access to Access that Jesus Christ has given us to come right into the very presence of God and to stand in this grace firmly, never able to fall away. And not only that, but to rejoice, to glory in hope of the glory of God. That we, in fact, will be partakers of this glory one day. We will see the Lord face to face. Why? Because we've been justified. So now the focus in chapters 5 going forward is really about assurance, that if we understand that we truly have been justified by Christ, that is the linchpin, so to speak. That is what breaks the dam and opens to us the flood of blessings, every spiritual blessing, in fact, in Christ, that really uh, takes us all the way through to the end. So our sanctification guarantees our, excuse me, our justification guarantees our sanctification. Our sanctification guarantees our glorification. All of salvation, all of redemption is yours, brother and sister, if you've been justified by the Lord through faith in His Son. That is the key. So assurance is the focus of Paul's message. And then he gets to what we've been looking at the last many weeks in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And he now helps us to understand assurance in terms of headship, doesn't he? He helped us to see that, Adam is the head of all of humanity, and that in him we all received the curse. We, re- we received his condemnation and his death. It spread to all of us. His sin and his death spread to every one of us in him. But to all who are in Christ, we have received every blessing, haven't we? All his justification, all his life, even his reign of grace, it all belongs to you now who are in Christ. So again, the theme is assurance. It's that justification is the linchpin that opens up every other blessing. And now we get to the beginning of chapter 6, and some commentators would say, Paul's now done talking about justification. Now he's on to sanctification and glorification as we get to chapter 8. And I have to give credit to uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, dear brother in the Lord who's since gone to be with the Lord in 1981, but he was used mightily by the Lord in Great Britain in London for many years. He pointed out some things, really, in this whole uh, message today that I have to give him credit for, and I I, I don't pretend to come up with original thoughts. I'm, I'm interested in learning the truth. God has given great light to his saints of old, and so we could learn much from them, can't we? We want to learn the truth, we want to learn the old ways, and then we want to proclaim that truth. So Lloyd Jones, he points out here that chapters six and seven are really a parenthesis, a big parenthesis, between chapter five and chapter eight. That was a little bit stunning for me, because I had so much heard and, and read about this break from justification, moving to glorif- excuse me, moving to sanctification and then glorification. But Lloyd-Jones says, look, he's done this before. Paul, in his writing, has set out parentheticals. We saw that in 12 through 19, didn't we? In fact, he argued that there were two. We argued there were two parentheticals in that section. Well, he's saying now these are bigger parentheticals, chapter 6 and chapter 7, that deal with two problems that have been raised at the last two verses of chapter 5. And the two problems raised relate to the law. Chapter 5 verse 20, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the two issues that Paul is dealing with here are, number one, the issue of the legalist who would raise this objection. Paul, you seem to be setting aside the law. In favor of just grace. You're talking about abounding grace, super abounding grace. Where's the law in any of that? And because of that, if you set aside the law, people are just going to be lawless. They're going to be what you call antinomian. It's just a fancy term that means against the law. Anti, against, nomos in Greek, the law. Lawless people who would just say, hey, let's continue in sin that grace may abound let's do as much sin as we possibly can because it will put the grace of God on display and make him look better. That's the argument of the antinomian. And so Paul is raising this objection that he knows his Jewish opponent, who is a legalist, would have in his mind, and he would say, no, no, no. You cannot just allow people to sin with abandon by setting the law aside. You are creating antinomians, and that's wrong. But the legalist well, his solution would be to look at his own performance. Right? He wants the law. He, he wants to be able to keep the law in his way in order to earn his way and get, quote unquote, justification or righteousness with God, which, of course, we know is impossible. So that's the first issue. And as part of that, Paul is really also addressing these antinomians in this question he asks Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's also addressing the antinomian, the libertine, as you might call them, who would agree with the statement, we do continue in sin that grace should abound. We want to do that. And so chapter 6 as a whole is really written to address whether antinomianism, libertinism is a valid response or a use of grace. Is that a right use of grace? That's what Paul's going to deal with in chapter 6. The second issue that he's dealing with related to the law is this. The legalist would ask, in addition to setting aside the law, it seems like you're saying there's no purpose for the law. I mean, clearly the law was important. God gave it to Moses at Sinai. Israel had identified so much, ethnic Israel, with the law as part of their being Jewish. So what is the function of the law then? And Lloyd-Jones is arguing that chapter 7 is really all written as a response to what the purpose of the law is in the matter of salvation. So chapter 6 is written to address the antinomian. Chapter 7 is written to address the legalist as concerning the true use of the law. And those are parentheticals between chapter 5 and chapter 8. That's interesting because when you look at chapter 8, it begins, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. This idea of condemnation links us back with the end of chapter 5 because Paul talks about how it was through Adam's sin that we were condemned, but through Christ's act of righteousness that we were justified and we are no longer condemned. So you can see how really Paul is continuing his logic of justification. He's, that concept, that theme is still very much in his mind. But he is going to now link it in chapter 8 to our sanctification and ultimately our glorification by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, again, it's a string salvation. Uh, It's a a link of chains that are all together. Um, You see this especially at a climax in chapter 8. Verses 29 and 30 where Paul says, For whom he foreknew, referring to God, for whom he foreknew. That means he set his love upon a group of people. He also predestined, he marked them out to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn Christ among many brethren. And then he continues the chain. Moreover, whom he predestined. So, foreknew, predestined. These he also called. There's the next link. With the effectual call, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So there it is in summary form. If you've been foreknown, really, in eternity, you will be glorified. But in our present experience, when you've been justified because you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's the linchpin that opens up the rest of salvation from your perspective and my perspective. So, chapter 5 and chapter 8 are really connected together, but there's a couple of parentheticals that Paul's going to use here to deal with these questions of antinomianism and legalism. Now, in terms of um, chapter 6, there's an organization, and I'm, I'm spending some time on this because it's helpful when you are studying Scripture to look at the whole before you start looking at the parts that make up the whole. We can get lost sometimes if we just jump into a verse out of context And run with something, right? Or come to a conclusion when we haven't really seen the whole. So it's important we see the whole. As an overview, I could say that the chapter is organized um, in two parts. The first 14 verses are the first part, verses 15 through 23 is the second half. And you see that because in verse 15, he really repeats the first verse of the chapter, he restates what he said in verse 1. What then, verse 15, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. And then he gives us more. So the first half here, the first 14 verses, he's really dealing with the impossibility for believers to continue living in sin once we've been justified. He says it's not possible anymore, and he's going to deal with that at some length. In the second half, he's going to deal with this matter of who do you serve? Who's your master? Is it sin or is it righteousness? So there's a more practical element to that second half, a doctrinal element to the first half. And within this first half, where we're going to be focused today is really just the first two verses, verses 1 and 2, where we have this, a question and a general answer. So you're taking notes for today. The outline's pretty simple. Verse 1 is the question, verse 2 is the general answer that he's going to give, and those are really the two bullet points for today. Let's look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Obviously, the beginning of his question connects us with what came immediately prior to it at the end of uh, chapter 5. What shall we say in response to the fact that sin reigned in death, but grace might reign, or grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord? What shall we say then to that? Shall we say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, you may remember in chapter 3 that Paul did something similar when he addressed several objections from his Jewish opponents Um, Regarding their advantages. And in verse 8, he he says this of chapter 3. Why not say, Let us do evil that good may come? There's a similar question, isn't it, to chapter 6, verse 1 Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul's saying, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, some people were saying in the church that Paul was teaching antinomianism. Let's just do evil and live with uh, and sin as much as we can that good may come, that God would put his grace on display in response to our sin. And Paul says, their condemnation is just. He never said that. He never taught that. But one thing that we will see as we go through this is anytime somebody is preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, they are always open to the criticism of antinomianism, of preaching grace so that if someone interprets it this way, you can just sin with impunity as much as you want. The true gospel, preaching the true gospel alone will subject a person to that kind of criticism and that misunderstanding. If you preach uh, legalism, law, just do as many good works as you can and by God's grace you'll get into the kingdom of God. You would never have this question come up about antinomianism, would you? Of course you wouldn't want to continue in sin. You want to get as far away from that as possible so that you can do good works and get into the kingdom. But for those who preach the true gospel, there's always this Error that comes up that has to be addressed. And our responsibility as preachers of the gospel is not to shirk, is not to fear man so that we don't teach the true gospel. We do proclaim grace, abundant grace. But we also promote the truth of the responsibility to repent, to turn away from sin, and to live a life of holiness. So, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The first thing I want to call to your attention is the the word continue that he uses here. This is a strong word in the Greek. It's the word epimeno. It's an intensified form of the word to remain or to live in, to dwell in. And what it means is to habitually remain in. As a person would habitually remain in or dwell in or live in a house, Permanently. That's your permanent residence. That's the word he uses when he says, shall we continue? Shall we habitually remain in sin? And as you remember, as we've been uh, learning in Romans 5 verses 12 through 19, when he talks about sin, he's talking about sin's nature. He's not just talking about individual acts of sin. For that Uh, Concept He uses the word offenses, the paraptoma. Those those are individual sins. But when he talks about the sin or sin that entered the world, that's the nature of sin that we have all inherited, received from Adam. So shall we habitually remain in this state, this nature of sin? And in the immediate context of verse 21, we learn that sin was a reign, a kingdom, a dominion. That was ruling over all who are in Adam. So his question is, shall we habitually remain in the sin nature and under the reign of sin? That's the question. And I hope the answer is obvious, having read it that way and having looked at the context. But you have to ask, what kind of a person would advocate for continuing in sin that grace may abound? Who would raise this question legitimately? Is it someone who just misunderstands grace? Is it someone who believes that their sinning is really a legitimate showcase for the grace of God? I want to show you what Scripture has to say about this because Scripture does speak on this issue quite a bit. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Hmm. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, what things? Well, in verse 13, he said, looking for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, knowing that God is going to burn up this present earth with Intense heat that will melt the elements. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scriptures. This is an interesting portion of Peter's letter for a couple of reasons. Um, He is affirming the writings of the Apostle Paul in this section we just read. Um, as being on par with, equivalent with Scripture. But the reason why I wanted us to look at this is because it tells us something about the people who take doctrines, some of which are hard to understand, and, and perhaps one of those hard doctrines is the one that Paul is putting forward here to us in Romans chapter 6, about the grace of God and its use. And what these people do, who are untaught and unstable, and that means that they are unlearned, they're ignorant people. Not unlearned in things of the world, but spiritually they're unlearned. They're ignorant of God's truth. And they're unstable, they're vacillating, they're tottering is the meaning of that word. They twist, they pervert to their own destruction Those truths, as they also do the rest of the scriptures. So, the kind of person that would advocate for continuing in sin, that grace may abound, to take that wonderful, pure, lovely doctrine and twist it and turn it into something that it was never intended to be, which is just to serve and gratify the lust of the flesh, as an antinomian would argue, that is... uh, coming from someone who is ignorant and unstable and who willfully twists the truth. That is not just a misunderstanding of grace. That is a rebellion against grace. Let me give you another example. Turn a couple of pages over to Jude just before Revelation. Jude, starting in verse 3. Jude says, Beloved, While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude is acknowledging to his readers, he was going to write regarding common salvation, um, to encourage the saints that way. But instead he found it necessary to write uh, a letter contending earnestly for the faith that really defends the faith against the false teachers and their twisting of false doctrine, or twisting of true doctrine into false doctrine. And he says, For certain men, verse 4, have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out, they were pre-written for this condemnation, ungodly men. That means men who don't have the fear of the Lord in their attitude ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, that's a word that means unbridled lust, passions of the flesh gone wild, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So what kind of a person would advocate for turning the grace of God into a license for sin? Well, This kind of a person, an ungodly person. And in this particular context, teachers, Christian teachers who had come into the church who looked like the genuine article from the outside, but inwardly they were seeking to deceive the people. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. Ungodly men who, again, turned the grace of God. Similar idea to twisting, but in this case exchanging the grace of God Putting the grace of God in one place and taking their lewdness and substituting it for the grace of God. Saying, this is a right use of the grace of God, the lust of my flesh. Continuing in sin to the max. Paul says, or Jude says in this case, they are ungodly men and they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe not in word because they're Christian teachers. They're using all the right language, but in their deeds they deny him. That's a wrong use of grace. It is a willful turning of the grace of God into license to sin with abandon. That's the kind of person who asks this question. Is this a legitimate use of grace, Lord? No. They are unstable, ungodly, wicked people. And when they hear about the free grace of God, they hear, let's sin to the max. The reason they do that is because they love their sin. They love their sin. They're those that Paul describes to Timothy as lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In other words, they love themselves more than they love God. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Well, who's the power? God himself. They deny him from such turn away. They are people who have never been released from the prison and from the bondage of sin, who dwell under the rule and reign of sin and death, as we've been learning the last couple of weeks. This is the antinomian. This is the libertine who distorts grace. He doesn't just misunderstand it, but he distorts grace. And brothers and sisters, as you think of this in your mind, as you're driving down the road, often there is danger on two sides, isn't there? A ditch is not only necessarily on one side of the road, it can be on both sides of the road. And you don't want to steer into either one. Antinomianism is one side of the road, a ditch. The other ditch is legalism. Legalism. The legalist would never advocate for continuing in sin, and in that sense, he's right. But where he goes wrong is he thinks that he can earn his way, earn his righteousness with his good works. His answer is always his performance. Because deep down, he doesn't distort grace. He actually despises grace. He hates grace. He doesn't want anyone to do anything for him. He wants to earn it himself because he's proud. Two ditches on one road. And Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer is in verse 2, Romans chapter 6. Certainly not. Various translations on this, God forbid, of course not, absolutely not, by no means, may it never be. In Greek, it's mi yenito. It means the strongest expression of disgust and revulsion to an idea. It's an idiom. And he says, it's like in today's language, we might say, are you kidding me? That is so wrong. He uses that exact expression multiple times in Romans, ten times in total. He's used it actually four times up to this point. And when he says, certainly not, he follows it up with this. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, brothers and sisters, this is, this is one of the most important statements in all of the book of Romans. So I would encourage you to underline it or box it or highlight it or remember it. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? It is so important, and because of that, we need to understand what it means that we died to sin. That specifically. What does that mean, that we died to sin? And there's three things that I want to look at with you or encourage you to do in your own study of the Word, and certainly in this case right here that I've done, that will help us get the right meaning. There's three things, syntax, that is the way words are ordered in the Greek. There's grammar, the tenses of the word, is it past tense, is it uh, perfect tense, is it continuous action, is it future tense, all that matters. And then what the context is, and per- that's arguably the most important, the context that the verse sits in relative to what came before it and what comes after it will help you and guide you in determining the right meaning. So first, on the syntax, the order of the words. In the Greek, this is how it reads. Listen to this. We, being those who died to sin, how still or how any longer shall we live in it? We, being who we are, as those who died to sin, how shall we still live in it? Is the sense in the Greek. He's not saying... We who are dying to sin, present action, continuous action, or something that we are doing to die to sin daily, he doesn't say that. He says we being who we are. He's pointing to the kind of people that we are now. That's the key. Not what we've done, not what we're doing, but who we are. In other words, now that we've uh, not that we've done something to die to sin, but something that has happened to us to cause us to be dead. So that's first, the syntax. That's our first clue. The second is the grammar. This is in the aorist tense. We died. Not we are dead. Not we are dying. Not we shall die at some point to sin, but we died to sin. Past tense. An action that happened at one point in the past that is no longer happening. It's completed. It's completed. And then the third thing is the context. His whole argument that we were learning in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 is about Adam and Christ. The reign of sin and death are over all who are in Adam, but the reign of life and grace is over all who are in Christ. And there is of necessity a transfer that's taken place, right? From in Adam to in Christ. You say, how? Verse 17 of chapter 5 For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more, to a larger, much greater extent, those who receive abundance of grace. We looked at that in one of our messages. Who take hold of, who cling to abundance of grace. How? By faith in Christ and of the gift of righteousness. When you believe in Christ, you're granted His righteousness. You're taking hold of His righteousness by faith. That's the person who will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So the context here, most of all, helps us to see what Paul is asking or what he wants us to understand in chapter 6, verse 2. What does it mean that we died to sin? It means this, and it must mean this. We died to the rule, to the reign, to the dominion of sin. We were transferred from the dominion of sin to the dominion of grace, in fact, superabounding grace. And to, frankly, it's surprising that there is a lot of confusion in the commentaries, the Christian commentaries, on that particular point. What does it mean that we died to sin? There are some who uh, advocate perfectionism, right? You've heard of this—that we can achieve in this life uh, sinless perfection. They would say that. Uh, we no longer have anything to do with sin whatsoever. Its power, its love are gone, but also its influence. It doesn't even influence any, us anymore, our sin. And what's our answer to that? Well, Scripture's answer is that's, that's false. That's really false. John, in John, 1 John eight, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, All right, and the truth is not in us. He says, little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But when you sin, know this, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So you're dishonest if you say you don't sin. We all sin. That can't be what the meaning is of we died to sin. There is still an influence there, but not perfectionism. There's others who kind of put a normative spin on it. In other words, they say we ought to be dead to sin. In light of the truth of the gospel... We ought to die to sin. We should stop living in it. So it's kind of a plea that if we just had the right understanding, we would do this. We would die to sin. But he doesn't say we ought. That's not in the grammar anywhere. It's we died, past tense. There's others who argue for a continuous present action. They say something like this. How shall we that are dying more and more to sin live any longer in it? Well, the answer to that is easy. The text just doesn't say that. And then there's others who have inserted a personal resolve into the phrase where they say this, How shall we that have renounced sin? So they substitute died to sin with renounced sin. We we made a formal declaration, a resolve. I'm no longer going to sin. And that's right, but it doesn't go far enough because it doesn't capture the true meaning of what Paul is saying here. So what is the right way to interpret We've got to look at the syntax, we look at the grammar, we look mostly at the context for the meaning. And what is Paul saying here? He's saying, we being who we are, those who died to the rule and reign and dominion of sin, how shall we abide in, dwell in, live in that state any longer? The answer now should be obvious, right? Paul is not saying that we're just not permitted to continue in sin. He's he's not saying, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Stop doing that. He's saying, it's actually impossible for you to do that anymore. Not possible. If you've been born again and placed into Christ, you can't also be living under Adam anymore. It's a logical impossibility. The two things are mutually exclusive. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. This might be a remarkable statement to some of you, and it should be because it is true and wonderful. What Jesus has done for us on the cross, and in his resurrection, he has brought the reign of sin to an end for all true believers. He's brought it to an end, it's over. Paul is teaching that this death to the reign of sin is something that Jesus did for us. It's something that happened to us. In other words, your status has changed from condemned to justified, from death to life, from reign of sin to reign of grace. And I want to show you several reasons why it is, in fact, impossible for us to continue under the reign of sin any longer. Number one is, We died to sin, this idea we've been talking about. We are finished with that realm. We can no longer live in it because we've been moved out of it. In chapter 6, verses 3 through 10, Paul is going to teach us that because of our union with Christ, what happened to Christ happened to us. When he died and was crucified, we were crucified with him because he was standing in our place to take our punishment. When he rose from the dead, we rose with him. These are spiritual truths, brothers and sisters, that the Lord is going to teach us through his spirit. So we have died to sin, number one. That's why it's impossible to live in sin any longer. Number two, we've been transferred out of the reign of sin and death. We we looked at this last week with several examples. Uh, we looked at Colossians one thirteen and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We've been delivered out, out of darkness, into the kingdom of His dear Son. Paul in Philippians 3 says this, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, That they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another way of looking at the transfer that's occurred. We were citizens of earth, we are now citizens of heaven. Now, not we will be citizens of heaven someday in the future, but actually right now, you are a citizen of heaven. That's why he says you're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Why? Because that citizenship has been revoked. You now have a citizenship that is in heaven. Colossians 3, 1-3, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where? In heaven. In heaven. A new rule, a new reign. So we've died to sin. We've been transferred out of the reign of sin. Thirdly, we have a new master. We have a new master. Listen to Romans 6, verses 17 through 19. A preview of what is to come. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Brothers and sisters, we no longer serve old man's sin any longer. He has been dethroned. We now serve the Lord Jesus Christ and we are owned by him as his slaves. A sweet ownership. A sweet ownership. So we have died to sin. We've been transferred out of the reign of sin. We have a new master Fourthly, we have a new nature, right? First John chapter 3, verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin. And we saw that that means does not practice sin any longer. Doesn't practice sin. Why? For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. God is holy. He has come to us to take up residence inside of us, to dwell in us. He will not abide in a house that is filthy, and so he has to recreate us in Christ as a new creation to bring us out of the prison that we were in, enslaved to sin and Satan, and brings us into his own domain where he clothes us with the righteousness of his Son, and he adopts us as his own very heir and son. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. There's another phrase for this old nature of ours, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which after God is created, that word means fashioned after God, like him. Fashioned, in righteousness and true holiness. You see, we were brought out of Adam and put into Christ in order that we would be holy, that we would do good works. In fact, the good works that he has ordained for us that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2:10, right? So we've died to sin, we've been transferred out of the reign of sin. We have a new master, we have a new nature. And then lastly, I would say our affections have been changed. Our affections have been changed. Romans chapter 6, verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. How many can relate to that? We were proud of, we lived in, we rejoiced in, our and loved it, our sin before, didn't we? But now we are ashamed of those things that we used to do because God has changed our hearts. He's given us new hearts where we love righteousness and we hate our own sin. Psalm one nineteen one o four, our corporate reading this morning, the psalmist says, Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. How is it that we come to hate what we used to love and love what we used to hate? It's through the Word of God. Through the precepts of the Word of God, we get true understanding, spiritual understanding. And God changes our hearts. Proverbs 8, verse 13, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. This is wisdom personified as a person speaking and saying, I hate evil in every evil way. You see, unlike the, God, uh, the ungodly that Jude writes about, those who have been taught the fear of the Lord by the word of God hate evil of necessity. It's part of our new nature now. Now, as I've been giving you these examples as proofs of why it's impossible that we should live in sin any longer, in that habitual residence where all we could do was practice sin, there surely must be a question rising up in your minds. And that question is something like this. It all sounds wonderful. How can you say, though, that we truly died to sin when I still struggle so much with sin? I still deal with temptation, and I don't always win those battles I sin and I see that. So how is it that my relationship to sin is ended? And the answer to that is this. The reality and my present experience of reality are not always the same. Let me say that again. What is true, the reality, objectively true, outside of you, and your perception of reality do not always line up perfectly. There is often a gap, a misunderstanding there from your present experience now and what is actually true of you. Let me give you an example of this. In fact, Paul's given us a couple examples already in Romans 5. In verse 10, for example, he says this, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So let me ask you a question. When is it that we were reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? Well, according to verse 10, it was that God reconciled us through the death of his Son. When Christ died for us on the cross of Calvary, he reconciled us to God then, That was objectively true because Christ earned that for us. He made that our status at that point. But look at verse 11. We have now received the reconciliation. When is it that in our present experience we know that we've been reconciled to God? Isn't it when we come to faith in Christ? We put our faith in him? That's when we are justified and that's when we know that we're reconciled. What is true of of us from the time of the cross we now come to understand in our present experience. Paul said the same thing, same idea in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, and that means constituted sinners, were put into the class and category of sinner, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So the big truth that we saw in verse 19 was It was Adam's disobedience that caused God to regard me as a sinner, put me into the category of a sinner in God's mind. And just as much as it was Adam's disobedience that did that, it was Christ's obedience that put me into the category of a righteous person in God's mind. The work of someone else put me into the category of the righteous. I had nothing to do with it. That was what was true of me, objectively. But again, when is our present experience of understanding that we have been justified and made righteous by Christ's obedience when we come to faith in him? I'm going to give you one other example that to me has is, is probably been the most helpful example in this connection and of, of how there can be a gap between objective reality and my subjective experience of that reality. During the American Civil War, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln signed what's called the Emancipation Proclamation, and that emancipation, that law changed the legal status of three and a half million slaves in the southern states, the Confederate states that had seceded from the Union, and it changed their status from slave to free instantly. Instantly. The reality changed for those three and a half million people instantly. But how many of those slaves realized that they were free and started living as free men in their present experience? You see, in fact, what we learn is that many of them did not act as free men right away. In fact, when they saw their old masters, they would cower in fear and trembling still not realizing that their master had no power over them any longer. They were free men, declared free. And yet they lived like slaves for a time after that. Something like that is what I think Paul is after here. And he and the, the Scriptures and the Spirit of God are helping us to understand something of that in our Christian experience. I mean, you may have years of bad patterns that you have established because of being under the reign of sin and death. That stuff doesn't just change overnight, does it? It takes time for the Spirit to teach us and to recondition us to this new way of life where we walk according to the power of the Spirit and not according to the flesh any longer. Brethren, we have a great freedom. It's what the the Scripture calls superabounding grace that is reigning over us to live in freedom from the tyranny of sin. God has not given us this freedom as a license to practice sin, but for a very specific reason, and it's this. To live for God and no longer for ourselves. In short, it is to glorify God. So I want to give you just a couple of thoughts from the Scripture on what the purpose of true grace is in our lives, what the right use of grace is in our lives. Grace, first of all, transforms us into holy people. See, we start with justification, don't we? That's a forensic, a legal declaration. You are now right with God on the basis of what Christ has done for you. <clears throat> he took your sin, He gave you His righteousness. That's justification. It's a legal declaration. But He doesn't stop there. What is the next bus stop, so to speak, in our traveling, our road of redemption? It is sanctification which means holy living, which means making us more like Jesus Christ and less like our old selves. Grace transforms us into holy people. Luke chapter 1, verse 74 and 75. This is Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, and when he is prophesying under the influence of the Holy Spirit regarding the Christ who is to come. And he says this, To grant that we, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear. How? In what condition? In holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. So, what is the purpose of God's delivering us from the hand of our enemies, from sin and Satan and from the, the lust of our own flesh? That we might serve Him in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. Not that we might continue in sin, but that we might live for him. Acts chapter 26, this is um, a section when Paul is giving his testimony before King Agrippa and he is recounting his Damascus Road conversion experience. Um, Acts 26, starting in Verse 14, Paul is saying that this is what he heard after being knocked to the ground. He heard in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Now listen to this purpose. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. There's the transfer from kingdom to kingdom. And from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance a lot, a possession, among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, my translation is not the best on this. Who are being sanctified is what the text says in the Greek. Who are being sanctified by faith in me. In other words, you are going to go to the people The Gentiles, you are going to preach the gospel to them that they might be turned away from the power of Satan to the power of God, receive forgiveness of sins, and an inheritance among those who are being made holy, sanctified, by faith in me, Jesus speaking. That's the purpose of our deliverance, holiness. Peter says, this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And then he addresses them, the Christians, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak, as a covering, a veil. For what? For vice, for evil, for wickedness. But as bondservants, as slaves of God. Your freedom is not ever to be used as a covering for your sin, as an excuse to sin. It is only to be used to serve the living God. And in Galatians, Paul says in 5:13, for you brethren have been called to liberty. Only don't use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We were talking about this that this morning in our Bible study in Philippians. In love serve one another. This is the reason we have liberty. It's to serve one another, which is what? An expression of our very love to Christ. Bent out this way, right? To each other. It's one of the evidences that you live for God and not for yourself anymore. That you serve the body of Christ. That's what grace is for. Remember, we learned last week, grace is always paired with righteousness. They go hand in hand. That's true in our justification Christ fulfilled the law completely for us. He didn't set it aside. He went right through the middle of the law and completed it, fulfilled it for us. That grace, his grace, his gift of righteousness might be given to us. It's true in our justification, but it's also true in our sanctification. Grace is always given that we might live holy lives. Righteousness and grace go parallel on the tracks together. So the first purpose of grace, and maybe the big purpose, is that we our holy people, that we would become more and more holy over time. Sanctification. And then just briefly on a second point, there is a witness that we have, isn't there, in the world that brings glory to God when we are living in holiness. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That's what fleshly lusts do. They war against you having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. And that phrase, day of visitation, refers to the day of salvation. So when the ungodly observe the good behavior of the Christians and they come to faith in Christ because the Lord visits them with salvation, they will then look back and see how they observed your good works and even perhaps reviled you, hated you, spoke evil against you and that will bring God glory that he is vindicated, he is right and you were wrong and you now see it. Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount this way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. (coughs) So again, Brothers and sisters, shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? Is that a question that a Christian would ever even ask? No, because it's an impossibility for us who have been transferred from the reign of sin to the reign of grace. Grace to the sound, the ear, to the ear of a wicked person is license to sin. But grace to the hearing of the righteous person is power to live a holy life to God, to his glory. Just listen to this quote as we close from Martin Lloyd-Jones, which I, I thought was wonderful. I couldn't put it any better, so I'm going to quote him. Quote, As a Christian, you must not think of yourself merely as a man who has come to a certain decision and wants to do this and that. No, if you are a Christian, what is true of you is that all the dynamic of the reign of grace is upon you and is working in you to bring you to Perfection. The apostle is anxious to bring out the certainty. That is why the suggestion in the first verse is so monstrous. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The whole object of grace is to destroy sin and all its works and all that belongs to it. So that suggestion is impossible. We are under the power that is destroying sin. So how can we possibly continue in sin? You see the argument? End quote. Is anyone struggling this morning with this teaching, brothers and sisters? With this instruction that we have in fact died to sin even if we still commit sins? We no longer, just to be clear, we no longer live in sin, meaning we don't practice sin. It's not the pattern of our lives anymore. That doesn't mean we don't ever commit individual sins. We do all the time. But what makes us different? and new creatures in Christ is that we repent. We have conviction over those things from the Spirit of God, and we repent. We turn away from that. And we ask for the Lord to be merciful to us. And, And as we confess our sins, we find that he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins, right? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have the joy of the Lord restored every time we confess our sins. Let me offer you some encouragement this morning to those of you who are struggling with sin as I struggle with sin. No matter how strong the impulses of sin are in your life, and there are some that can be very strong, right? If you are in Christ this morning, listen carefully. You do not need to obey those impulses. You can say no to sin in the moment by turning to Christ, by filling your mind with his word, and by being in prayer and by being in fellowship and having accountability with brothers and sisters in the church. Romans 6.14 says, Sin shall not have dominion over you. It will not. Like it did before, that is over. You have died to the reign of grace, excuse me, to the reign of sin. So again, no matter how strong the impulses of sin are, God's grace is infinitely stronger than the strongest impulse your sin can manifest in you. Think about that. The grace of God, this superabounding grace is infinitely stronger. It's not even a comparison. The scales are totally tilted in favor of grace for you and for me. We have to remember that when we are facing those temptations. Do you believe that truth? Because it's true. If you are a new creation in Christ this morning, your status has already changed from slave to free. The Emancipation Declaration has been signed by God. Are you walking in that freedom serving the Lord this morning? Or are you still living in cowardly fear and anxiety when old man sin pops his head and the devil shouts his insults against you to try to put you into a state of despair? Scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You were slaves of sin, but you are now the slaves of righteousness. Wherein is true freedom? That's true freedom in the Christian life. You may have had years of bad habits in your history of sin, but if you're in Christ, the chains of bondage have been severed and he now calls you to a new way of life. Why? Because you can. Not because you have some intrinsic strength in yourself. We don't but because we have the Holy Spirit of God. We have God on our side fighting for us. You may believe that you still have trouble with this. This might be an issue that you're wrestling with actively. For that person, I I say this to you. This is a matter of faith. You need to trust God to do this, the impossible for you to do in yourself. Say, Lord, I cannot do this in myself. Please strengthen me. I know your grace is sufficient. Turn your attention to the word. You know, we often put that emphasis because the scripture puts that emphasis. Let your mind be filled with the word of Christ. Dwell on the word of Christ richly. But you know, Ian Hamilton, who is a preacher, a wonderful godly man, he said something that really stuck with me. He said, it's not the person that reads the most who is the most sanctified. In terms of scripture, It's the person who meditates most on the word who is most sanctified. How many of us spend time thinking about what we are reading? Pouring over it, wrestling with it, asking God to give us light and reading good books and commentaries that help support these truths and solidify them to our minds and hearts. We need to be filled with the word, meditating on it. We need to be in prayer constantly, calling out to the Lord, just from your spirit throughout the day, talking with him, communing with him, asking for help, finding help in time of need, and, of course, in fellowship with other believers, this, right? But as often as possible, we need that. And as you do that, as you fellowship with the Lord in these ways, through the word, through the prayer, through the fellowship of his people, you will find that he will strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by his righteous, omnipotent hand, right? As the hymnist says it. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Not a chance. We have died to sin. We can no longer live in it because we are now ruled by grace. Let's pray. Marvelous truth, Father, that you've given us in your word to know that you would be so kind to us, Lord, who are sinners, to open our eyes to a wonderful truth of what you have done for us in time past, in Christ, and, and even further back, Lord, I mean, in eternity, how you have purposed to foreknow us, to set your love upon us, in order that we might be marked out, selected for salvation in your mind and then in space and time that you would send your dear son on a rescue mission for our souls. That we would be called by the Holy Spirit of God to look to Christ and see his work that he accomplished at Calvary for us and in his resurrection rising from the dead with power for us. And that we would believe by faith and be justified And having been justified, that we would be sanctified, made holy, made more like Christ through the work of your spirit and the superabounding grace that is working toward us and for us. All the way to the end, Lord, when you will glorify us as you have promised in your word. Father, we are to be happiest above all people because you have done it all. You have planned it all. You have executed it all. You have applied it all. Your salvation is rich, full, and free in Christ, and we thank you for it. Thank you for these brothers and sisters, and thank you for the work of your Spirit in all of our hearts. Search us, try us, see if there be any wicked way in us. Help us to confess and repent, and lead us in your way, the way of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.